What is up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast, where I'm joined by Sri. He is the host of the Market Champions Podcast, which has been going on for a few years. So if you haven't heard that yet, be sure to check it out. He brings a wealth of knowledge as well as you know the, the financial background. So we go over all this interesting stuff going on, you know, with uh, the the crypto crash, the market, the potential of a war going on. A lot of things that both him and I have really never seen in our investing history. Um, so we look back at how we're looking at these things based on some historical trends. So. Uh, it's a really interesting podcast and a great conversation, so be sure to tune in. And as always, ladies and gents, this is not financial advice and should never be taken as financial advice. Like I said, not financial advice, not financial advice, not financial advice. So let's get into the episode. Whoosh. Hello, 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 and welcome to another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast. Like, thank for everybody listening here on Podcasting 2.0 apps and those have sent me boosts on Fountain. Uh, be sure to leave me a little review or something like that on those boosts or some five-star reviews wherever you listen to podcasts, and I'll be sure to read them out and subscribe and like wherever you get podcasts to keep spreading this around. So thank you so much for everybody joining on a weekly basis. I've got a very special guest. You've probably heard him on Spaces around Twitter. Sri, how are you doing today? Doing well. How are you? Good, good, good. So you're an analyst at Simplify uh, oh Asset man. Management. And, yeah, Simplify uh, Asset Management and the host of the Market Champions podcast. So, you know, how are those things going? I know it's a very hectic time right now and, uh, you know, a lot of volatility to say the least. So, you know, how's everything going on your end? Oh, well, thank you for having me on. So it's, a, it's, a, it's really a pleasure to do this. I really enjoy the Twitter spaces that you guys host every Tuesday evening. So um, it's fantastic. And then in terms of the markets, uh, so in terms of the podcast and where it's, it's been pretty fun. Um, it's been, you know, sort of a great time to get, you know, some of the smarter you know, people who are smarter than I am on and you know sort of get to pick their brain about what's going on in markets right now you know they they obviously one have more experience and two know a lot more about what's going on especially as it relates to bear markets you know this is sort of the first bear market that a lot of us including myself obviously um are seeing in excluding say march 2020 you know that was almost sort of a blip or like a blur um this is sort of more long term in terms of what's happening and I think, you know, just on that front, I think it's very interesting because, you know, we're starting to see some of, we're starting to see um, some, some interesting things happen. Um, we're finally seeing a lot of the so-called growth stocks um, come down to more reasonable valuations. You know, this is something that we've talked about before, especially during 2020, 2021, you know, talking about how. Uh, some of these stocks are trading at these absolutely ridiculous valuations. And it's also interesting to finally see stuff like fixed income come back to life. So, you know, that's that's sort of um, another interesting aspect that's worth watching. So just overall, um, it, it just makes for very interesting markets considering that over the last decade, you know, interest rates to an extent, fixed income and FX, you know, they've sort of not really moved that much. So if you look at the 10-year yield, it sort of had a so low grind lower so you know fixed income bolts have made a good amount of money over the last decade but now you know it sort of becomes very interesting because finally you know after so long we're starting to see um we're starting to see fixed income yields especially on the 10-year 30-year rise all the way up to close to four-ish percent um they, they were about four percent not too long back so it's, it's, it's just very fascinating to watch what's going on in markets these days yeah, for sure. So let, let's bring it back a little bit, though. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and kind of how you got to where you're at today. Sure. So um, so, so I really got started back uh, when I was 13. Um, I think I was 12 or 13. So, you know, I just picked up a book about finance. Um, I think it was picking, uh, it, it was a book about picking individual stocks. And then ever since I've just been hooked. So I've just gone about reading every single book, research paper. Um, 
you know, article, blog post, so on, and then trying to seek out people who are smarter, more experienced than I am and try to sort of pick their head about what's going on in markets these days. So I think what's fascinating about, uh, so I think what's fascinating about, um, you know, getting started young is sort of, um, it's just sort of, uh, I mean, it's been, it's been awesome, you know, having that early start, but also I think it's given me sort of, uh, so, you know, um, I started the podcast back and I think it was grade 10 and, uh, so it's been about four years since I've started that podcast and, you know, sort of using the fact that I was young was, you know, sort of nice leverage to get people on, you know, I'm like, I'm young, you know, I want to talk to you about this, 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 I run a podcast, you know, could we make it happen? And, um, and so, so that was pretty cool. And then, you know, I really got on Twitter, um, around the start of the pandemic, which is when most people, um, really shifted to using Twitter and, you know, Twitter also had a lot of these smart, super smart hedge fund managers and so on. And, you know, these are people that, that, and, you know, this discourse that, you know, you're able to interact with a lot of super smart people and, you know, ask them questions, you know, get, get, get their thoughts on, get their thoughts, get different perspectives and try and figure out where you're wrong, which I think is very important. So I think that's, I think Twitter really provides an opportunity to do that, especially, you know, spaces, et cetera, like the one you host, I think, you know, provides a very similar opportunity. So, you know, you can hop on and, you know, there's going to be someone, you know, you could be the one who's bullish on bonds and, you know, there's going to be someone who's bearish on bonds and you can have that discussion, try and gain the other side. And, you know, hopefully, um, hopefully um, in a very civil manner. So <laughs> that's, that's, that's yeah, sort of what my background is. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, yeah, I mean, on that note, I mean, you brought up Twitter spaces and kind of like the discussions, you know, pot, you've got your own podcast, obviously. How do you think that just like that overall discussion and kind of, you know, being able to pick a lot of people's minds, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, just some anonymous person on Twitter who seems like they have a wealth of knowledge or maybe some asset managers, uh, you know, what do you think about this, like, you know, coming up in kind of a place where people are more spreading their knowledge as opposed to like kind of holding their strategies close to the vest. I think one, it's awesome that there's a lot of people or there's a lot more people who are willing to share information. So, you know, one of the things that does happen on Twitter and, um, and, and you know, you sort of see this quite often is if someone is, say, especially say within the crypto and the gold bug community and sort of the blonde vigilante community, you sort of see a lot of the civility within the discourse go away. So, you know, people get mad and, you know, they, they start saying all sorts of stuff. And I think, you know, that's sort of the bad side of Twitter. But on the good side, I think, one, it's awesome that, you know, there's a lot of people who are willing to share their knowledge. And, you know, there's many people who specialized in following certain markets. And so, you know, some people are very good at following options markets. You know, some people are more focused around FX, FX derivatives. Some people are more focused around fixed income and its derivatives. Some people do individual stocks, for example. And then, uh, you know, some people do commodities, et cetera. And so, you know, I think just within that, you know, just uh, so, you know, if you have a question about oil or, you know, you have some view about oil and, you know, someone else is, you know, super bullish on oil, well, you know, you seem to be more bearish and you're able to have that discourse and, you know, people being you know, generous enough to share their time and knowledge. I think, you know, it's very cool. And it's sort of really democratized and, you know, it's sort of a, it's sort of an overused word at this point, but it's, it really has, you know, it's really, um, improve the access to a lot of these super smart professionals that you can just interact with and ask questions directly. And, you know, especially, you know, if, you know, if someone goes on a podcast and they say X, Y, Z is their view and, you know, you sort of disagree with that, you know, you can really, um, you can really you know, reach out to them and you know, text them, or you could reply to another tweet and be like, Hey, you know, on your recent podcast, you said something and, you know, what do you think of this? You know, that sort of disproves that, or, you know, that sort of complements that. And, and and usually they're more than happy to reply. So I think that's that's I just think it's been a very it's it's a very cool platform and uh, the ability to interact on on Twitter is is, is awesome. Yeah, for sure. And, it, you know, you get a lot of access that you normally wouldn't really have access. You just, you know, usually see these people kind of on like CNBC or other things like that. And now, you know, you kind of have uh, maybe a front row seat to get, go and talk and ask some questions. So it's definitely a, a great platform. So uh, but, you, you know, you talked a little bit about, you know, coming up and kind of learning and, and starting the podcast a few years ago, you know, while you're still, you know, in, in high school, it seemed. Um, so, uh, you know, so uh I think that it's probably accelerated a little bit of your knowledge or at least like helped you kind of, uh, you know, feed that curiosity. So it's awesome to see that, you know, you're still kind of getting in there and, and learning a lot. Um, but, you know, 
you brought up a little bit earlier about the current market conditions and it's, you know, uh, for you and I, it's both our first kind of like big dip and, and kind of, uh, you know, other than I guess the, the COVID crash, so to speak, even though it shot back up almost immediately after. So, you know, what kind of things are you looking at when you see this, this kind of economy and, uh, you know, how are you kind of analyzing the overall macro environment? Yep, for sure. So I think one of the things that's worth looking at is um, is housing. And so I think now housing is very interesting in many different ways. So housing is a very strong leading indicator because sort of this housing multiplier exists. And so, you know, housing um, as a sector sort of requires resources from almost every other sector. So, you know, what in the construction of the house, it requires a lot of these materials, a lot of, you know, drills, machinery and so on. And then, and then on top of that, you know, creates a, it creates a good amount of jobs, not just within construction, but also within um, also sort of the secondary sectors. You know, someone has to produce the concrete, someone has to make the cranes, et cetera. Uh, and then on top of that, you know, when people buy those houses and move in, you know, they have to buy additional amounts of furniture. You know, they have to buy sofas, um, dishwashers, uh, refrigerators, and so on. And so you have to buy these finished goods. And just overall, the housing multiplier is very, very strong. And it's one of the, and I think, you know, just on that front, it's something that really plays a significant role in the economy. So overall, uh, just so overall, you know, keeping that in mind, I would argue that what we're really seeing um, on the back of that is we've seen a very, very weak housing market. So I think some of the interesting numbers are really the, the market, uh, you know, mortgage loan demand, housing starts. So I think yesterday, the U Michigan, um, uh, the U Michigan buying conditions for houses um, came out as part of their uh, consumer sentiment release, and and you know it's it is it, just absolutely collapsed. And so if you look at or you look at if you look at what's happened to it ever since um, the start of 2022 and 2021, it's just been it's just been down the toilet. And just just broadly, you know, both buying and selling conditions for houses are down. Um, you know, the expected changes in housing values one year down the line is negative. And the last one was negative was 2020. And before that was in the aftermath of the Great Recession. So I think that's the, so I think that's very, very fascinating. You know, we're starting to see, um, so we're starting to see housing affordability go down. A large part of it is because of the interest rate changes. So, you know, we've seen interest rates get hiked up. We've seen mortgage financing, uh, we've seen the financing costs of mortgages also go up and the interest rate costs that are associated with the mortgages go up. And so, just fascinatingly, um, the the so just just on a, it's just fascinating because the, the the housing market is super weak, and we've also seen in uh, manufacturing and industrial production slow down um, or even go into negative growth territory. And so, it's not it's it's not very strong at all. And you know, one of the one of the frameworks that I found very interesting is Michael Cantro uh, has talked about this hope cycle where it starts off with housing and then moves into orders, manufacturing, industrial production, then that eventually affects profits and then affects employment. And, you know, just just on that basis, you know, we've seen housing, you know, housing has really shit the bed. And, and so when you think about, so when you think about the shift from housing to orders, um, we've seen the manufacturing, industrial production, all these uh, uh, new orders, et cetera, slow down. And so if you look at the if you look at the various Fed manufacturing surveys, the Dallas Fed, the Empire State Fed, the Philly Fed, the Kansas City Fed, um, they, they publish these monthly manufacturing surveys. And if you look at the demand for new orders and uh, new production, that's also come down significantly. Similarly, the expectations for prices paid has also significantly come down. And so, you know, what this tells me is that one, I just on a production supply chain basis, we're starting to see a lot of these price pressures ease. And, you know, that is sort of the, the one that's promising in terms of inflation slowing down. But, too, you know, these orders easing um, is very interesting because that makes you sort of that, that or at least that makes me uh, think about uh, sort of a bearish situation for the economy because you're starting to see orders slow down. And we've also started to see some amount of profits get hit. So if you look at the most recent earnings cycle, um, we started to see negative guidance, um, uh, negative, share, negative stress lower in earnings guidance and forward guidance. Um, some amount of some amount of losses have been caused by FX changes, especially for companies that do business internationally. But just on an overall basis, we're starting to see these profit estimates come down, and 
And, you know, the, 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 the sort of the next domino in that hope cycle is really employment. And, you know, as I just as I find what he's, uh, what Michael can't show um, in his sort of framework to be very fascinating. And, you know, I completely agree that, you know, the, the next the, the next domino to fall and that we might see very likely towards the end of Q1, um, early Q2 is employment is also going to start uh, start taking a hit. And, you know, we're going to start seeing layoffs and so on. And we're going to see um, some sort of a recession set in or at least an economic soft spot set in um, within the next two quarters. And so if you think about that um, and if you think that inflation is going to slow down, which is what which is what I sincerely think is going to happen, um, I believe that. Uh, so, so my belief is that we're going to start seeing um we're going to start seeing price pressures come down. We're going to start seeing bond yields come down as well. So I think, um, at least from an investment standpoint, bonds look very, very attractive um, at, the, uh, at this point in time. Yeah, and I, and I agree. And, and I, uh, you know, I actually, I, I was really hitting that uh, Cantro, um, you know, his his hope cycle earlier on in this. But um, I just think it's interesting because I think housing is still kind of, you know, teetering um, in certain areas. So I'd be curious to kind of hear your perspective as, you know, somebody who's is Canadian, right? I'm, I'm in Florida. So I have a little bit of, I guess, a different mar- uh, perspective on the housing market, because, you know, different areas of the country of the United States, that is, have been, uh, you know, I guess, because of COVID and like openings and, and what have you, uh, people kind of have flocked to, you know, different states like Florida, Texas, Tennessee, and those housing markets, sure, like I've, you know, I, I bought a house a couple of years ago and it elevated significantly and it's kind of stagnant, stagnant at this point, or at least, you know, according mm-hmm. to certain estimates. Um, right. But I feel like it's still getting hit uh, pretty hard in certain areas of the country and kind of decreasing rapidly while, you know, areas like Florida are kind of, you know, just holding steady, so to speak. So, you know, I, I guess how, how is your overall view on, you know, the housing market in the U.S. and kind of like how are you looking at it, like analyzing there? Because, you know, also, also you know, the, the housing market in, uh, in Canada, too, is, is something that's a little wild these days as well. Absolutely. So, you know, one of the things that's that I find uh, or at least I take into account when it comes to looking at the housing market is there is sort of the structural undersupply of housing um, throughout metro, throughout a lot of metro areas in the U.S. and very importantly in Canada. So if you um, ever come to Toronto and then you go take a look at the suburbs of Toronto, like Mississauga and, you know, anyone listening from Toronto, um, you know, from the greater Toronto area would agree is if you look around, you just see a lot of these single family homes. And essentially the way the essentially the way um, the, stru- the structure of the housing supply is is done is, is sort of centrally mandated by these various city councils and municipal governments. And so if you look at what a lot of these government a lot of these governments do is they place these zoning laws or these various supply restrictions within um, within these municipalities or within um, within these cities and so essentially they say you know within this piece of land or within this zone you can only construct single family housing you can only construct the detached homes you can only construct town uh, townhouses but the thing that they will uh, but the thing that they minimize the construction of is uh, our apartments and so you know the higher you construct you know if you can build an apartment on that unit of land you're able to supply uh, significantly more housing and so you know in a place where that could have hosted say five or 10 single family homes, you know, you could build say a 10 story apartment with say five units on each floor. So you'd have 50 units of housing as opposed to the 10 units of single family housing that would have existed otherwise. And so this is five times the amount of housing that would have existed. And, you know, so, so on that front, the, the government essentially mandate um, the construction of single family, um, you know, low supply type of housing as opposed to, you know, Construct uh, the construction of apartments and high-rise buildings that actually said that that supply more housing per unit of land, and so if you so so uh, you know one of the one of the interesting facts about the Canadian housing market is if you, especially in Vancouver, it is easier to get a pope elected to the Catholic Church than it is to get an apartment building approved in Vancouver, and I think that's uh, one I think that's absolutely nuts. And then too, you know, it's it's no surprise that um, a lot of the a lot of the Canadians 
the so-called housing bubble in Canada is really driven on the supply side more so than on the demand side. And this this is this dynamic holds throughout the year throughout a lot of metro US. So uh, so so a lot of people have single family houses as opposed to um, apartment buildings. And you know this this is again primarily primarily due to these various zoning laws and supply regulations that exist. And so you know over so overall I think that is a single uh, that, that is one of the biggest dynamics that exists uh, that exists within the Canadian, the U.S. housing markets that drive prices so much higher than than they really should be, um, but you know some part of it is definitely driven by foreign speculation, etc. Um, but 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 the other problem with Canada is the housing affordability. Um, so one of the things that I was reading recently was that in Canada, um, housing affordability is at a forty-one year low. So in forty, so this is the lowest, this is the least affordable housing in the last forty-one years. Um, there's this, it's a similar dynamic in the United States as well. So there was a chart that I just published uh, that, that the, um, the Atlanta Fed just published. And, um, and I put this up on my Twitter today, uh, earlier this morning, and it sort of breaks down the changes in affordability. So one, um, US, U.S. affordability is also very low. And two, it's been mostly driven by interest rate changes and price changes. But the one interesting dynamic that's very different from the U.S. versus Canada is that in the U.S. housing market, most mortgages are 30-year fixed rate or you know 15, 20-year fixed rate. So the the mortgages are fixed rate. So you know if I if you know someone was able to lock in you know two percent interest rate, um, say sometime in the last couple of years, uh, what they were able to do is essentially they've locked in that interest rate for the rest of their mortgage. But essentially, every almost every single mortgage in Canada is floating rate, and um, essentially, the, the 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 max fixed rate that you're able to take in Canada is five years, so most most so most mortgages are almost practically floating rate mortgages. And if you think about that, um, when the mortgage rates reset, they reset at this super high rate um, compared to what people were um, used to paying, and so therefore this drives interest rate costs higher. And that that is another big part of why Canadian housing affordability is so low um, these days. So I think as so I think you know. Just broadly, so one, you've got the supply, you've got this big supply issue, and then two, um, within Canada at least, you know, you have this this dynamic of fixed versus floating, uh, fixed versus floating rate mortgages, and then three, um, you know, that's some part of that, and you know, due to that, you know, you're starting to see um, affordability at you know forty year lows. So I, I I just think it's absolutely nuts what's going on. Yeah, for sure. And I don't know if there's any really sign of it slowing down at this point, because it seems like the Federal Reserve said that they're, you know, Jerome Powell's come out and said he's not going to stop until inflation's over. Right. Um, there has been kind of a narrative around financial Twitter, FinTwit, as we like to call it, that, uh, you know, there might be a pivot coming up soon. So, you know, what are your views on that? Do you think that the Federal Reserve is going to keep raising interest rates? Um, and yeah, let's let's kind of get into that. Sure. So I think... Um... So I think what the Fed should do versus what the Fed will do are two very different things. And so at least at the moment, the Federal Reserve is going to keep hiking uh, at least at 50, um, I'd say 50 bips um, every meeting until the inflation number comes down. I think the, I think the issue with what the Fed is doing is that interest rates take, uh, take about 12 to 24 months to actually play into the real economy. And... And you know, it's charting to. I think this is the um, this, this is the the the, the quote by um, Warren Buffett. So Warren Buffett has talked about, and he relates this more to stocks, but it applies here as well. So he's talked about how uh, you know to have a baby, you have to wait nine months, and you know you can't have a baby in one month by getting nine women pregnant. And I think it's sort of I think a similar dynamic applies here because you know what the Fed is doing is it supposedly is playing catch up with what the uh, with what it was supposed to do. So. Um, so when it was so when it thinks uh, so when you think about what the Fed is doing, it is going after consumption and demand. And I think what the Fed is really doing is implementing a very very um, short-term uh, solution to what's going on uh, to, to what's going on in the economy, because the primary causes were one supply chain disruptions and two massive underinvestment in various commodities and and you know the the, the real solution to this would be to say. So, for example, one of the biggest constraints on um, on gasoline, gasoline supply, um, diesel, etc., has been the lack of refining capacity in the United States. So, what's so what's interesting is, um, uh, what's interesting is the U.S. has about 130 refineries. So, in order to uh, in order to build one refinery, it costs about five billion dollars. 
this is so you know from uh, if you look at what the uh, if you look at the federal government's budget you know this is sort of a rounding area you know five billion dollars is nothing you know considering that the government spends over you know trillion trillion and a half dollars two trillion dollars whatever so if you so you know they could build a significant amount of refining capacity say 10 20 refineries you know massively boost refining capacity and you know, this would be sort of a longer term solution to what's going on with oil however uh However, what the uh, well, what's going on is the complete opposite. Because one, the Federal Reserve is busy hiking; it's going after consumption, it's going after demand, and you know we're starting to see some you know some impacts of that. But then you know on top of that, um, the federal government you know seems to be, and the, the federal government um, seems to be, and we see this more in Europe than in the U.S. is uh, they're they're happy to hand out money. Uh, for example, California was doing it, the U.K. was doing it, and this was more so to help the help those low-income people um afford more groceries but it's essentially fueling the consumption side even more so what so instead of actually solving the real problems what we're really doing is kicking the can down the road and not really fixing anything that's going on but back to but back to fed policy what i think the fed is doing is as much as it's very likely going to kill demand and you know probably loan growth is going to slow down and you know we're starting to see housing demand slow down and we talked about how housing spokes over into other sectors what they're what they're essentially doing is you know Powell sort of thinks of himself as some sort of Paul Volcker, and I and I think the Volcker and I think the typical Volcker story is very misunderstood. But you know, Paul Volcker, at least the, the conventional story goes, you know, raised interest rates and you know, forced the U.S. into a recession and killed inflation. That's what that's that's what the usual story about Paul Volcker is. And you know, Powell sort of sees himself as you know some sort of a heroic Paul Volcker. You know, he comes in with eight percent inflation, and then you know, he, he you know he jacks up rates, starts jacking up at seventy five basis point every single meeting. Um, and then when he, and then um, uh, it peaks at wherever. And then once once it peaks, you know what we're really seeing after that is um, is inflation comes down, and there's some sort of a recession, and you know. Power and you know Powell was brave enough to risk a recession in order to bring down inflation, and th this is sort of the story that that Powell, at least I believe, has in his mind. And I think this is completely and, and, and you know when I think his interpretation of what what went down in the early 1980s was was wrong. So I believe that in the 1970s, the biggest driver of inflation was uh, was a demographic boom, and this was led by the baby boomers, um, my, minorities, women, etc., entering the workforce and and this was a huge jump in the workforce. So if you look at the labor force growth from, uh, or you know, just overall in the '70s, and you know, this this was coupled with uh, with food shocks, energy shocks, and so on, and you know, you had this massive demographic boom um, coupled with those shocks, and you know, that led to a double-digit rate of inflation. But when Paul Volcker came in, you know, Volcker was not the inflation did not come down in the early 1980s because, um, you know, because uh, Volcker raised rates. It came down in the uh, in the early 1980s because Volcker came in and he was lucky enough to come in at the exact moment that um, uh, at the exact moment that demographic growth started to slow down. He came in at the exact moment when labor force growth started to slow down. And I think if you think about that for a minute, um, Paul Volcker was not a hero. He was just more so lucky. And what Paul Volcker actually did by raising interest rates so high was that he forced the he killed the supply function in the U.S. and essentially forced the U.S. to run a current account deficit, essentially importing um, the supply deficit that, that 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 existed as a result of his higher interest rate policies. And so, you know, with that sort of framework in mind, you know, looking at what's going on today, one, we don't have that demographic boom, so I do not think we're seeing a structural shift in inflation. And two, um, I think the thing that most people forget about inflation is that um, it's not the price level itself, but it, rather it's the rate of change in the price. It is the rate of change in the price that, you know, when we say inflation is transitory or it's going to come down over the next couple of quarters, what we're really saying is that uh, the rate of change, the, the rate of change of the price level is going to come down. It's not the price level itself. And I think that's, I think that's where a lot of people miss out or get wrong um, as it relates to um, inflation. So, so just overall one, um, going back to Fed policy, and I guess you know I've been I, I sort of went off on a tangent, um, but 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 you know going back to Fed policy, what's what really is going on is one the Fed is attacking consumption, and you know, two it's very uh, we're likely going to have a recession due to that, and you know we're likely going to see inflation come down, but three you know none of the structural supply issues um, are are being fixed. So you know what 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 the Fed is really implementing is 
a short-term solution as opposed to you know something um, something that's uh, something that's more meaningful. So yeah, I mean, I guess on that that note, I mean, it seems like you know that they're, they're going to just continually raise interest rates. Um, you know, whether it's, you know, 50 basis points or what have you, but until, you know, inflation is quote unquote slowed down. But like you said, it's kind of kicking the can down the road. So, you know, what are, you know, it's tough here to, to make predictions. And that's obviously a very tough question. But, you know, on that note, do you, I, I kind of think, you know, personally that you're, you're correct there where he's, he's kicking the can down the road and it, it's destroying the offshore dollar market. So, you know, the U.S. dollar and the United States economy is going to do a little bit better than maybe like Europe and some of these others who are a little bit more reliant on you know, the U.S. dollar, obviously, as a global reserve currency. But on that note, you know, it, it is a very global de- economy. The supply chain issues are still kind of persisting. We've seen production not be not really come back to those pre-COVID levels. And so... You know, I think I think that uh, we might have like a slight recession, but I think it's going to kind of play out, especially with all these you know, potential geopolitical events that are going on with like Ukraine, Russia and you know, maybe the, the Chinese Taiwan potential conflict and, and what have you. So, um, you know, do you kind of see it dragging on for a while or do you kind of see it as another, you know, maybe even like covid bump where, you know, once they kind of see something else that they might start, you know, going back into QE and, and printing money again? So I think one of the so I think one of the risks to what the what's going on is you know, sort of a potential um, blow up in the monetary system. And so just overall, if you think about what's going on, um, in terms of monetary economics, um, the Federal Reserve is heavily focused on so you know market. You know, liquidity is one of the key factors in markets, and liquidity is very very important, of course. Um, and so you know, if we end up seeing another March twenty twenty type event. Um, it is very likely that, the, that I believe the Fed reverses course, and you know, we saw this sort of with the BOE, and when the when the UK pension fund system was at stake, um, they immediately shifted. You know, they forgot about inflation at least for a quick minute, and then you know they shifted to um, QE policy. They started buying gilts again, just so that you know, just until the the, the pension system uh, st- stabilized itself, and you know what's. Now, what's fascinating? What was fascinating about that UK situation was one: if the BOE was aware of that situation, you know, my guess is they were probably aware of the systemic risk, and then they just chose to ignore it. Um, and then, two, you know, what are the that that was the UK? You know, what are the risks in the US, and you know, are there some sort of systemic risks within? Uh, you know, especially from a positioning standpoint, where you know people hold these positions, um, especially derivative positions that may may or may not be reported. And, you know, they have these positions and then um, uh, they, they have these positions and then, you know, they're sort of you know, in, a, in a situation where they're forced to liquidate. And, you know, what happens if, if, if something like that happens? And then uh, and, and I think, you know, if, if the U.S. was to see a similar scenario, I think the Federal Reserve would also similarly reverse course and then go ahead and start buying treasuries and uh, reducing rates, you know, go back to its policies of QE. Just, if we start to see some sort of monetary mayhem, and even if we didn't, and we finally started to, uh, started to see inflation come down, um, I think, uh, you know, that would that would again be a cause, especially if we enter a recession, that would be a cause for a Fed pivot. But I think one of the probabilities that's interesting is, uh, or those one one of the scenarios that's interesting to consider is that the market sort of prices in uh, Fed hikes. But you know, there, there is there is definitely the possibility of the Fed. You know, they they've hiked to whatever. I think that uh, I think the uh, I think the the Fed funds rate is at a four hundred ish basis points right now, if I if I remember correctly, after the last hike. And if they've they, if I got uh, I don't know if that number is right, but the the, the, the but the, but the point is, um, they've reached this level, and now there is a strong chance they just stay at that level. They pause. They say, okay, you know, we've hiked so much. This is the fastest rate of hikes that we've ever done. And, you know, interest rates actually take a bit of time to play through the economy. You know, housing has come down. Uh, we're starting to see orders, manufacturing production weaken, um, at, least on a, uh, at least on a sentiment basis. So, for example, consumers are now expecting unemployment to rise um, in one year's time. And so, you know, we are, we're starting to see these PA, we're starting to see weaker business conditions, weaker business expectations. We've tightened financial conditions and markets are markets have moved lower. No, we could we uh, you know they could they could pause here and then they could sit down and watch um, for the next few months and see okay you know we've paused now you know it's time to see what's what's actually happening 
and and then you know the other events that you mentioned for example um uh, you know china taiwan invasion so one that would be very very consequential and then two uh it would be consequential to an extent to the semiconductor supply but the us uh, from a geopolitical standpoint has been following this policy of um of, it's it's starting to move away from getting itself involved in these foreign affairs so you know they were previously involved in places like Kurdistan or Syria. They were involved in Afghanistan, etc. And you know, they finally pulled their troops out. You know, one argument that can be made is that one uh, is that Taiwan has a strategic incentive for the U.S. Um, and the U.S. to defend um, Taiwan. And you know, I think it's likely that they might say play a proxy war, etc. But the, but this shift in U.S. Uh, in the thinking of the U.S. as it relates to foreign policy has been, you know, these are conflicts in these foreign countries. You know, why should we care about them? You know, why should we send our American sons and daughters to go fight, uh, to, to go fight some of the, to go fight a war that completely does not concern us? And the, and the one thing the U.S. has done, for example, is it's gotten TSMC to build a semiconductor, a very, very advanced semiconductor fab in Arizona. And I think that's very interesting because it's sort of trying to shift away or reduce the, uh, reduce the strategic the strategic importance of Taiwan to the United States. And so, if you look at so if you think about it from that standpoint, what we're really seeing is is the U.S. is reducing its dependence on countries like Taiwan. Um, and then the point that you made on the U.S. dollar, I think I think it's interesting because the U.S. dollar is definitely one of the key variables, especially for a lot of the smaller countries, like a lot of the smallest emerging market countries, et cetera. And, you know, the Fed has been hiking at this tremendous pace. So especially versus currencies like the Japanese yen, the Chinese yuan, et cetera, you know, to an extent, you know, considering they're exporting economies, they benefit a little bit from currency depreciation. But considering the speed at which uh, the currency is depreciated, especially in places like Japan, you know, businesses and exporters are warning that the depreciation is going to do more harm than good. And in addition to that, especially in places like China, one, you know, the Chinese lockdowns are, are very interesting to follow. Um, you know, one of the one of the possibilities is, you know, what if China never reopened or what if China reopens and nobody cares? And, you know, that was one of the things that I posted a few months ago because um, I don't remember what city it was, but there was a consumer sentiment survey taken in that city right after the reopening. And it appeared as if consumers simply did not care that the reopening took place. And, you know, it's going to take a while to, you know, sort of restore consumer and business confidence. And the zero COVID policy is going to be very, very difficult to implement um, on a long run basis. So, you know, you can't, you know, you simply cannot be um, locking down your people, you know, every couple of months because of the surgeon, uh, because of a surgeon COVID-19. And and so just so just overall, um, uh, just overall, if you look, if you also look at the Chinese um so if you look at the Chinese export, uh, if you look at the Chinese trade balance numbers, for example, you're starting to see that export earnings are not being recycled into higher wages for uh, for workers, and therefore it's not be it's essentially not going down to the it's it's not going down to the consumer, and it's not getting translated into consumer spending. And then on top of that, we're starting to see um, the housing uh, bubble in China start to, start to pop. So we're starting to see developers, especially the super leveraged developers, start to reverse course you know they're 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 losing tons of value they were super indebted and you know we're finally starting to see the reversal of that so that's that's also been a very very important factor to watch and um on a long-term basis I, it, it appears as if chinese demographics are not in the soundest position if you looked at chinese demographics back in say the 1970s you know they had a lot of kids and you know these people came in to the workforce around the 1990s early 2000s which was sort of the super boom of china and then now what we're really seeing is the, is the reversal of that. So we're starting to see additional government control of the economy. We're starting to see the Chinese yuan um, depreciate massively. And then on top of that, we're starting to see, you know, a lot of this regulation, you know, poor demographics, poor consumption, poor household spending, and a huge, huge amount of debt um, on the private sector. And, you know, Michael Pettis has talked a lot about this, and I completely agree, you know, it requires some amount of the or some amount of the aggregate demand or spending needs to be transferred away from the, um, it needs to be transferred away from um, the, the, the private sector, especially the real estate sector, um, to household consumption. And I think, so I think overall, you know, there's, there's just a lot of problems. Um, and so, you know, considering how weak the Chinese economy is, 
it's probably not prime time for them to go ahead and invade Taiwan, especially at this moment. Then two, the U.S. is sort of reducing its strategic importance on, on Taiwan. You know, it also became a net petroleum exporter. And what this essentially does is it actually reduces the U.S. dependence on the Middle East for the supply of oil. I mean, obviously, the price of oil, it's still highly dependent on OPEC. But however, for the simple supply of oil, you know, it's not it's not very dependent at all. And so I think just so I think just on that basis, it's it's truly something. It's sort of a very interesting picture um, to sit down and analyze and you know, try to figure out what's going on. Yeah, and I think like overall on that, the the entire message is essentially like the global economy might be uh, shifting to more of like nationalistic, where each country is going to try to be a little bit more self-sustaining than they are, less reliant on other countries, because then, you know, if conflict happens, it seems like, you know, these other countries can kind of pull the strings, right? Um, and that's where I kind of see it trending. Uh, but, you know, that kind of leads me to to where do you think like there's maybe some good, uh, you know, sectors that to look into that could potentially benefit off of all of this, you know, obviously, you know, potentially some oil and gas companies and, and some other things that we've heard kind of floating around Fintwit. But, um, you know, what kind of sectors are you looking at um, to maybe, you know, maybe not be as affected as, you know, some other sectors here uh, during a potential, you know, global recession? Sure. So, with, so just within, so just on, um, if we if we're going into a recession over the next um, couple of, uh, or sort of the next year or so, um, I find it very difficult to sort of buy equities in this environment. So I think that with, um, so I think with uh, the uncertainty around interest rate policy, but also on top of that, you know, trying to see. Um, one with the one answer uh, and then trying to see you know where financial conditions had so you know if financial conditions continue to become tighter that's sort of a t that's sort of a headwind for equity markets um and not a tailwind and so you know with that with that in mind i think what's very interesting is going to be if um the, i think i find bond very interesting right now but on an overall but on a longer term basis i find i agree with you i find a lot of commodity companies interesting so one shift that um, I've talked about before has been uh, has been a potential shift to nuclear energy um, and, and uranium as a source of fuel. So if you look at what's going on in Europe right now, um, Germany has sort of this overdependence, and Germany and a lot of the a lot of the big Western European countries have this huge dependence on Russia for their natural gas and oil needs. And to an extent also their food supply. Um, and so what so we're 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 at least what we're really seeing is this prospect of a very cold, um, hard, dark winter for Europe. But on top of that, um, on a on a more general basis, we're seeing that if um, if if you depend on a hostile country for your oil supply, it can be taken away at any second. And and you're also you know if that hostile neighbor decides to do something stupid or something bad that you know you as a country fundamentally disagree with, you sort of have to follow along because. Uh, because you are so reliant on that country for your energy needs and for your food needs, and so um, uh, and so, in order to cause a shift away from you know this over reliance on uh, Russia for um, energy needs, I feel that a lot of these countries are going to eventually shift towards uh, towards nuclear as a potential solution. So nuclear was huge across um, Germany, France, etc. And you know they eventually closed down uh, the the nuclear plants and then eventually and shifted towards coal, natural gas, and this has been a, a hugely uh, based off of a political shift in sentiment. So the the big political shift is that um, uranium is sort of this dangerous metal, um, and it's very very dangerous. And you know uh, some part of that is because of the media um, overhyping stuff like Three Mile Island, you know Fukushima, Chernobyl. But as much as the far 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 left tail. Um, the distribution is terrible, but uh, what is what is really interesting is that it is actually the safest form of energy because other than you know, these really bad tail events, and you know some of them are caused by natural disasters. For example, uh, Fukushima was caused by the tsunami, and so you know just overall, it's not really, it's not really, um, it's it, it's it's a very very safe form of energy, um, just to put it flatly. And I think, you know, that's going to be something that we start to see um, as the world shifts uh, more and more towards green energy, towards um, uh, towards sort of the clean energy, you know, pro-environment, et cetera. And I think, for example, Ontario is powered about 60% by nuclear energy. And I think that's very, very cool. Um, 
but, but but just on that basis i think you know within the united states you're, we're going to start to see that shift as well we're going to start to see the advent of small module reactors or smrs throughout the throughout the rest of this decade and then we're also going to see um so so as i think on that basis we're going to see um uranium and nuclear energy do very well um and then just on that basis you know we're also going to likely see stuff like copper um do well so anything that's had really poor capex um with uh, but the but the companies are you know pretty cheap you know they're not they're not too bad and then and then they have sort of a huge implication in the shift towards green energy i think you know overall you know those sort of companies are likely to do well and obviously you have to look at valuation make sure you look at the financial statements make sure you uh, make sure the balance sheet is clean etc you don't want to buy something that has a terrible balance sheet or that trades at some sort of crazy valuation um you know we saw a lot of the lithium companies for example trade at these ridiculous valuations you know companies like fuel cell fceo um traded at this ridiculous ridiculous valuation and so just overall i think it was it was absolutely it, it, it was absolutely uh, maddening to see to see those sort of companies trade that trade at you know crazy price to sales numbers or you know they they had no earnings they had very few sales but then they would say they would trade at say 50 times or 100 times sales even though they had almost no sales and so uh so just just thinking about just, just making sure you know you're paying a good price for uh for the company and so just so, so overall you know that would that, that would sort of be my thinking um but but overall in the next couple of years if we see some sort of a recession you know i would just try and avoid try and avoid equity exposure or try and hedge out um, any equity exposure assuming you don't want to you don't want to rid your portfolio entirely um and you know, simply, you know, one of the things that we're doing at Simplify is solving that problem. Where you know, we have a lot of this, uh, we have a lot of these tailor risk hedging strategies. I can't talk about them specifically um, because of compliance, but I can. But just generally, we have these various tail risk hedging strategies and these various ways to express equity positions um, that come that come combined with. Uh, again, the, the, the some amount of downside protection, etc. And so. I just think overall, it's. Uh, I, I just think overall, it's. Um, it, it, I think it's overall very difficult to figure out what what equities to buy for the next couple of years. But over the next decade, I I am sort of a, I, I am sort of bull, I, I am pretty bullish on some some of the various commodity sectors, especially stuff like nuclear. Yeah, that's awesome stuff. And I, I totally agree. I think there's going to be a big shift in policies. And and I think like the whole ESG narrative might move a little bit towards like nuclear and some of these other more efficient energy systems. And so, yeah, it's definitely an interesting time. And we'll see kind of how these yep. policies around it are, are affected. But um, I think one, you know, one more thing that I wanted to mention with regard to uranium is that to some parts of so some parts of the ESG um, narrative are very questionable. So if you take, for example, cobalt production, so a huge amount of, so I think over half of all cobalt production is mined in the DRC and the DRC, uh, you know, has a lot of these human rights, civil rights abuses, et cetera. So it's very fascinating that, you know, cobalt is, you know, has these large applications within EVs and within the shift to shift to green energy. But however, you know, sort of mined in this very non-ESG type place, but with uranium, I think what's fascinating is, um, I know a lot of it is mined in Kazakhstan and Russia, but there's there's a lot of opportunity um, for uh, uranium being mined. Uh, it's mined in Australia. It's mined in Canada, to an extent in the U.S. And then it's and then <clears throat> and there's a lot of uh, and I think there's a lot of opportunity because you know there's these various uh, there's this nuclear fuel cycle and then you know there's these uh, you, you get you can sort of play any specific phase of the nuclear cycle as well. And so I, th I think it's fascinating because there's just these different ways you can play uranium. And, and that's, that's, that's what makes it super interesting to me. Yeah, for sure. And I, and I totally agree with you. But, uh, you know, we, I usually wrap it up with one last question as it is a very volatile time. And, you know, there's a lot of different things going on. But there are some people that are kind of getting curious and, you know, trying to get started and get, get, uh, you know, their feet wet when, when it comes to investing. So, you know, what is it, your advice that you have to people that are kind of, I guess, on the fence and looking to kind of get started in investing in such like a turbulent time like now? Absolutely. So I think one of the, I think the way to proceed would be, so one would be to educate and learn everything you can about markets, about individual equities and then about the overall macro read a lot of financial history try and learn and understand economics and i think you know one thing that i would sincerely ask people to avoid would be um the austrian school of economics so as a 
you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not saying you know you need to, you know, become a pro, you know, full-on modern monetary theorist, you know, believe in the deficit myth, so on and so forth. But what I would argue is, you know, you should. Yeah, I, I would personally argue, I would personally tell people to avoid Austrian economics, especially if you're getting started and, you know, focus more on understanding the frameworks of thinking within the economy, trying to understand incentives. Um, and then overall, uh, read a lot of history. So I think, uh, I think the quote is that, you know, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And I think, you know, that, that, that holds true. Um, I, I, I sincerely think that holds, uh, that, that holds true um, on a long-term basis. And so, uh, reading, learning, economic, financial history would be one. You know, educating yourself, listening to podcasts such as yours, and then, and then trying to interact, um, trying to interact with people. But also, you know, within the, especially within these markets, if you're still learning, obviously, you know, don't don't bet your house on you know market going up or down or on bonds or whatever. You know, play with money that you know you're you're able to lose. And it's it's crazy because you know as you know simple, stupid, and as cliched as it sounds. Uh, if we see what happened with the recent FTX blow up, for example, um, or even just a loss of we've seen a lot of money lost in crypto over the last few months. And um, and, you know, a lot of that has been lost because of um, because of people are risking, you know, crazy amounts of money. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, a lot of people betting their house, betting also, uh, you know, betting huge amounts of money on options rates or whatever. And I think, you know, I just think that's absolutely ridiculous, you know, trying to act as if the market is some sort of a lotto ticket and, you know, you're, you're just trying your luck. So, yeah, that, that, that would sort of be my advice. I you know one, learn as much as you can, educate yourself, then to, you know, manage your risk very wisely, you know, don't, don't, don't run around, um, you know, don't, don't run around, uh, you know, risking money that was risking more than you can afford to lose. Sorry, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Why don't you tell people where they can find you and what you got going on? Absolutely. So, you know, you can find my podcast market champions at, um, you, you could just search on market champions on Spotify, iTunes, um, or you could just put market champions in Google, you know, it just shows up. Um, other than that, you can find me on Twitter at S R I V A T S P R A K A S H. So it's sort of a long name, but, or you could just search up my, you could, you could, you could just search up my name and, you know, you, you, you'd find me. Um, and so that's sort of where I talk more about markets. And then, you know, you can find more about what we do at Simplify at, at Simplify.us. So that's so, so that sort of wraps it up about, you know, who I am and what I do. Sri, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, we'll Thanks have to have you on, Brandon. Absolutely. Yeah. Sounds awesome good. Stuff.